Blog Talk Radio. I'm Robert Rogers, and this is Parkinson's Recovery, the place where you can get support, information, and resources to be able to find relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. I have three exciting announcements. My first exciting announcement is my new book, Road to Recovery from Parkinson's Disease, is finally out as of last night. It can be purchased in print form. I've been working on this three years, so this is truly a gift that I'm giving to myself in that I am finally finished, done, the word is out. My second deciding announcement is that Parkinson's Recovery is sponsoring a cruise to Alaska May 3rd, seven days, leaves from Seattle. I'll give you some more details a bit later in the program. The third exciting announcement is truly exciting. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Daniel Newman, a medical doctor, a naturopath doctor, a doctor of Chinese medicine, and a man who is truly making revolutionary contributions to how medicine is practiced today. Now we go to our first uh, part of my previously recorded interview with Dr. Newman. This is Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery. I am now in the clinic offices of Dr. Daniel Newman. You have a very unusual background that combines the best of medicine from the West and the East. You are a medical doctor, a naturopath, and you practice Chinese medicine in your clinic. What has led you to become so well-versed and qualified in so many specialties? Well, Robert, it's been a long and and circuitous path. I I actually decided to be a doctor at the tender age of eight after deciding to give up on a budding career as a paleontologist. I think all young boys want to be a paleontologist at some point. And uh, I entered uh, regular conventional medical school in uh, in 1977 and uh, completed my medical training at the State University of New York in 1981. And uh, at that point in time, I really didn't know very much about alternative medicine. My parents tried to feed me a good diet and sent me to health food stores at times. But other than that, I really didn't even know what a naturopath was. But I had an interesting experience while I was in medical school I became ill during my third year. It's a very intensive year with long hours. And I developed what nowadays they would have called a chronic fatigue syndrome. They didn't really call it much of anything back then. But I had a mono-like illness with a sore throat and swollen glands and fevers, and I just wasn't recovering. And after about eight months, I I went to the Mecca, and and they did all, uh, all sorts of tests on me, and they said, well, I guess it's a virus, and it'll get better. Well, it probably was a virus. They were right about that. But the it'll get better wasn't terribly reassuring when I wasn't getting better after about eight months. So I had a a break, a vacation at that point, and I went out to the the West Coast. um, And I ended up seeing uh, an acupuncturist. Now, this was back in 1979 where acupuncture was very newly reintroduced to the United States. But after four treatments over a two-week period of time, I was literally cured. My symptoms were completely resolved. And that left a lasting impression on me. The idea that something that was not part of my conventional medical training could have such a profoundly beneficial effect where conventional medicine really didn't have anything to offer me, it left a seed in me that said, you know what, someday I have to study this stuff. 
Now, I went about my regular medical training. I did an internal medicine internship and residency and at UCLA-affiliated hospitals and, and essentially went into practice. But over the years, I found more and more, particularly when dealing with some chronic illnesses and diseases, that conventional medicine wasn't able to help people or cure people in many of these instances to the extent that I would like. And so I began studying a bit on my own, studying some nutrition, studied some herbal medicine, and uh, I moved to the Northwest. And uh, while I was taking an herbal medicine course, my, my wife said to me, well, well, why don't you go to naturopathic school? And I didn't even know what a naturopath was, but when I looked into it, I realized that that was really what I was trying to do all along, was put together these different natural medicine disciplines and that naturopathic school would allow me to do that. So I went to naturopathic school and I had already done Chinese medicine training for acupuncture at a UCLA affiliated program and I had been practicing acupuncture since 1997. But I went to naturopathic school in 1999 and realized that despite the Chinese medical training that I had had at UCLA, that there was so much more to learn and there was a whole world of Chinese herbs that I wasn't taught. So I did uh, something that in, in retrospect and in one sense I'm very glad about, in another sense was a very foolish decision. I decided to get a, a master's in Chinese medicine as well. And um, I was able to compress a, a three or four year program into nine years. So I finally completed that, and that's my long saga of, of how I ended up studying both conventional medicine, uh, board certified in internal medicine and pain medicine, naturopathic medicine, and then Chinese medicine. Most people know what a medical doctor is and what they do, so I don't have to ask you that question, but what's a naturopath? A naturopath is a doctor who is is trained in many respects similarly to a medical doctor in the first half of their training. They learn anatomy, physiology, biochemistry just the way a medical doctor would. But then instead of primarily focusing on conventional medical treatments, which are primarily drugs and surgery, they focus on a wide array of natural treatments. And aside from the differences in the modalities used, there's also a difference philosophically. Conventional medicine, what's otherwise known as allopathic medicine, oftentimes is using its therapies to try to stop or block certain reactions or processes in the body, whether it's the growth of bacteria or tumors that are unwanted or other kinds of uh, physiologic systems like blood pressure that's gotten out of range or blood sugar that's gotten out of range. They try to block those functions from happening. In naturopathic medicine, rather than trying to block physiologic function, the focus is on stimulating the body's natural healing mechanisms in order to promote a better level of health. So not only is there a difference in terms of the types of treatments, the modalities that are used, but there's a difference philosophically as well. In addition to being a medical doctor and doing and knowing what medical doctors do and being a naturopath, you also know all about Chinese medicine. But a lot of people don't know what that is. Can you tell us more about what Chinese medicine is? Well, when most people think of Chinese medicine, if they think of anything at all, what they may think of is acupuncture. And acupuncture is certainly one part of Chinese medicine, and herbs are another part. Chinese medicine also has aspects where they talk about exercise and diet, just like we do in Western medicine. But the fundamental uh, aspect of Chinese medicine that is unique 
is its, its philosophical paradigm. In other words, in Western medicine and in naturopathic medicine to a large extent as well, we focus on modern Western science in terms of what discoveries have been made as far as how cells work, how hormones work, different chemicals in the body. But Chinese medicine is a system that goes back thousands of years that was based upon observations of how people function, not based on the kinds of, of scientific methods that we have available today, but based upon observing people and realizing that people are natural organisms, just the way animals and plants are, and that the way we function in our bodies has parallels to the way the universe functions. So, for example... There are situations where they might say the body is too hot. Well, we have a certain parallel to that in terms of fever, but they think of it in terms of the summer being too hot or a desert being too hot. They also have situations that we don't necessarily have parallels to where we think of people as being, they think of people as being too cold or too dry or too damp or too wet. And it gets much more complicated and elegant than that. But they look at the body in terms of how they can bring the body back into balance, just as if you had something in nature that was out of balance. If things were too hot, you might want to cool them. If they were too damp, you would want to dry them. And they have very elaborate systems that we may think of as being somewhat metaphorical, although they actually look at from a literal standpoint, of how you make those corrections in the body. The other thing is that the Chinese medical philosophy has looked at energy way before we had the kinds of uh, beginnings of looking at energy that we do today. Now, in Western medicine, we do look at energy. An electrocardiogram is a measure of the electrical energy produced by the heart. An electroencephalogram is a measure of the electrical energy produced by the brain. But we really are at a fairly rudimentary level in terms of our understanding of how the energy in the body works compared with what they've been able to discern in Chinese medicine. So in Chinese medicine, not only are they looking to correct imbalances based upon the natural systems of the body as they see it, but they also work on improving energy, improving the circulation of energy, and improving localized flow of energy in ways that we have a very little understanding of. But in Chinese medicine, they've already, already developed practices that have efficacy there. My experience with visiting a doctor or a clinic is that I typically get about 10, maybe if I'm lucky, 15 minutes with the doctor. What happens when a patient comes to your clinic? Well, I think that good medicine takes time. And just like a well-prepared gourmet meal takes a lot more time than fast food, good medicine takes more time than a fast encounter. Um, I have a, a friend of mine who has worked for a number of years for a large health maintenance organization that I will allow to remain anonymous, who is scheduled for um, six patients an hour. That's one patient every 10 minutes. Well, by the time the patient sits down, says hello, and you have your agenda and they have theirs, you're already saying goodbye. So what I do is I spend two hours with every new patient, and that's face-to-face -face contact. 
I do a full physical examination, but most of it really is spent in conversation where I get the history of what's been going on. One of the, the great physicians at the turn of the 20th century, uh, I believe it was William Osler, although it may have been Addison, said, ask the patient and they will tell you the diagnosis. Well, they may not tell you in medical jargon, but in terms of people telling you the information that you need in order to make a proper diagnosis, I find that that's the case and that you need to spend an adequate amount of time to do that. So I spend two hours with every new patient. And then even in follow-ups, the minimum amount of time I'll spend with someone is a half an hour. And then if it, the situation requires it, then I may spend an hour or longer with the patient. This is Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery, and you are listening to my interview with Dr. Daniel Newman. The, the exciting announcement that I have for everyone today is that my new book, Road to Recovery from Parkinson's Disease, that I have promised to you will be coming out soon, is finally out as of 12 hours ago. You can get more information about Road to Recovery from Parkinson's Disease by visiting the following website, www.parkinsonsdisease.me. It really reflects everything that I've learned from the many interviews that I've conducted with people just like Dr. Daniel Newman, people who are at the cutting edge of medicine, people who are figuring out what it takes to be able to get sustained relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's. Now back to the second part of my interview, previously recorded with Dr. Daniel Newman. Many people with Parkinson's believe that once they have been diagnosed, they are destined to get worse. They are told the condition is degenerative and progressive. Is this belief true from your experience? Well, I can certainly understand why people have that belief, because that is the conventional experience with Parkinson's disease. But in my experience, that is not necessarily the case. Uh, I have seen cases where when Parkinson's patients are diagnosed and treated fairly early that their disease can be arrested and in some cases reversed. Now, I don't want to be flip about it and say that that's true in all cases, depending upon how long the case has been uh, in force and how severe the case is then um, it may not be possible to reverse it beyond a certain, uh, a certain extent. Um, to use a very famous example, I don't think anyone could cure Michael J. Fox's Parkinson's at this point in time. But in people who are diagnosed, particularly if they manage to get an integrative treatment approach in force early on in their disease process, I have seen a number of cases where it has been arrested and other cases where it has actually been reversed. What are possible causes of the neurological challenges confronted by persons diagnosed with Parkinson's? Well, when you say causes, I can answer that on a couple of levels. In terms of what causes the symptom complex or the syndrome of Parkinson's disease, and I think most Parkinson's patients and certainly all doctors treating it are aware of this, it is a gradual loss or destruction of cells in a very small but important area in the middle of the brain called the substantia nigra. These cells primarily use dopamine as their neurotransmitter 
They're involved in a lot of processes that are critical for movement, motor coordination, and other uh, motor functions in the body. And as those cells die, those functions become impaired. Now, a deeper question is why do those cells die and why do those cells become impaired? Now, in a small number of cases, and there are a lot of Parkinson's cases in the United States. There, one estimate I read is about 1.5 million cases a year of Parkinson's disease, or, or one out of 100 people over the age of 60. It's a very common problem. In a very small percentage of those cases, there is a hereditary component where it may run through generations and there's some uh, abnormality in uh, an enzyme because that's what genes primarily code for that leads to the destruction of these neurons. But the vast majority of cases are labeled by uh, the conventional medical texts as being idiopathic, which is a fancy term for we don't know. But in truth, with what we know with modern science right now, we probably do know what's causing most of the cases of Parkinson's disease, and it is some type of environmental toxicity. Now, links haven't necessarily been firmly established in all cases of Parkinson's disease, although truth be told, I've yet to meet a Parkinson's patient where I wasn't able to establish a link of some exposure of environmental toxins. But there have been links to pesticides, to solvents, to certain kinds of toxic metals, and the list is ever-growing as more and more studies are done. So the vast majority of cases of Parkinson's disease, in my, in my experience, are due to environmental toxicity. What then is environmental toxicity, and what role does it play in the development of Parkinson's disease? Well, environmental toxicity, if, if you were to just uh, take the words as they, as they are defined, are toxins in the environment. Well, what's the environment? The, the environment is anything that you eat, drink, breathe, are exposed to that may come in contact with your skin. Those are exposures that we have to our environment. And environmental toxins essentially mean poisons. And there are many poisons that we are exposed to in our environment. Now, there are more and more chemicals ex exposed that we're exposed to in our environment every day. The government um, has approved the use of so many different chemicals that they can no longer test for all of them. Uh, estimates that I've read are that there are between 70 and 100,000 chemicals that are approved or at least accepted as being used in different kinds of industrial or commercial processes that are released into the environment, sometimes in staggering amounts. And many of these compounds have been found to be toxic, meaning poisonous, when they're looked at in animal studies and in human studies. But many of them have never even been studied at all. So we don't even know from a certain perspective how toxic some of these chemicals are because there just isn't the funding and the manpower to be able to study them. And if you were to, to, to look at the Environmental Protection Agency or the, 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 the FDA or the USDA, they would admit that most of these compounds have never been tested. Now, in the ones that are tested, they use a, a type of, of toxicology, meaning testing of poisons, that is mostly designed to be able to detect the adverse effects of a large dose of a poison administered over a short period of time. 
But that's not what happens to us in our environment. What happens to us in our environment is we're exposed to oftentimes very small dosages of a large number of compounds over a long period of time. And there's very little research about what that does, but the research that is available suggests that that can cause pretty significant and sometimes serious adverse effects to various tissues in the body. What is your overall approach to treating patients with Parkinson's disease? My overall approach is threefold. Number one, you have to make people comfortable. You have to deal with the symptoms that people are experiencing with Parkinson's disease. And those symptoms can be a wide variety. There's the classical tremor. People can have problems with balance, with ability to speak, ability to write. They can have problems with constipation, depression. There's a fairly wide range. And you have to deal with those symptoms with what I would call symptom management. The second aspect to treating Parkinson's from my perspective is that you have to try to protect the nervous system from further damage. So whether somebody has an ongoing toxic exposure or they've had toxic exposures in the past and those substances are stored in the central nervous system, you need to protect further damage because that's what causes the progression in Parkinson's is continued damage to this area in the brain, the substantia nigra. So the second aspect to Parkinson's treatment I would call neuroprotection. The third aspect I would call detoxification, which is that you want to try to identify and lower the load of toxins in the body so that they don't continue to be destructive to the nervous system. In uh, working with individuals who have the diagnosis of Parkinson's, what therapies in your experience and practice are helpful in particular for challenges with, for example, talking? and walking and depression and mental confusion and constipation and tremors. So I don't know if we should take each one one by one or all as a group. Well, let me take them all as a group, and then I'll say a little bit about each month. one. It would probably take the, the, the rest of our program to discuss all of them in depth. So in general, what you want to do is to address the underlying process. So in other words, if you have damage or destruction to these cells in the, in the substantia nigra, you want to work on removing the toxins, the detoxification process that helps to um, prevent further damage to those cells. So basically what I was speaking about a little earlier. Secondarily, you want to try to give the individual those substances that have either been proved or suggested in studies to be protective to neurons. And thirdly, you have to deal with improving the neurotransmitter balance in the central nervous system to address these uh, symptoms. Now, sometimes you can do that naturally with certain amino acids that the body can convert into uh, neurotransmitters. And there are times, admittedly, particularly in later stage and more severe cases, when you do you need to use drugs or pharmaceuticals. Now, just in general, in terms of some of the things that you're talking about, like uh, talking or, or walking, those are things where working with therapists who specialize in things like speech therapy or physical therapy can be helpful in giving people exercises that help to redevelop 
some of those areas in the brain. You know, it's not clear that you can really regenerate the substantia nigra once there's been a certain area, certain degree of destruction. But the brain does have fairly important and strong recuperative powers that were, when I was going to medical school, not thought to be present. But now, with more modern research, we know that even the adults of brains, the nerves that are remaining, can sprout new connections. And that was thought to be heresy 20 or 30 years ago, but there's good research showing that that happens in adult brains and not just in little children. So there is something to be said for doing therapies that will encourage the brain to sprout some of these new connections. There are different exercises that patients can do at home that can also help with balance. Um, as far as depression, uh, neurotransmitters can be boosted oftentimes with different types of amino acids. Sometimes you need to use pharmaceuticals. Um, uh, problems with mental confusion, similarly, uh, you can boost the uh, uh, mental capacity sometimes by using different types of nutrients. Uh, including amino acids and certain other um, vitamins and minerals. Uh, constipation is, is one of those problems that usually requires a, a fairly complex approach where you're combining diet and fiber and adequate water intake and the uh, neurologic uh, treatment that I spoke of a little bit earlier, and doing certain things that can help to stimulate the colon. This is where Chinese medicine, acupuncture, and herbs can be quite helpful. And, of course, tremors, which is the more, most classic hallmark for, for Parkinson's. That's where, um, by giving the, the brain either direct neurotransmitters in the way of, of uh, certain types of um, amino acids or pharmaceuticals, you can uh, help to boost the dopaminergic systems in the brain to help deal with those. I'm Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery. You're listening to my amazing interview with Dr. Daniel Newman, medical doctor and naturopath doctor and doctor of Chinese medicine. Dr. Newman has written an article uh, giving his perspective on Parkinson's disease, which is posted on the Parkinson's blog. It's quite an incredible uh, work, and I invite everybody to visit the blog so that you can read his article. That address is the following, www.blog.com. Parkinson'sRecovery.com, and that's all one word, so that's the word Parkinson's without an apostrophe, P-A-R-K-I-N-S-O-N-S, and then the word recovery, R-E-C-O-V-E-R-Y.com, and those Parkinson's Recovery are, are two words joined together. You'll see the top posting for December the 10th is uh, the posting of the article that Dr. Newman has written on his perspective uh, with regard to Parkinson's disease. So be sure to visit that. It's quite an incredible work. I also want to make sure that everybody knows that we have just announced that Parkinson's Recovery is sponsoring a cruise to Alaska this spring, May the 3rd. It departs from Seattle. 
Uh, you'll be able to sign up with Holland America, which is actually a, a luxury uh, cruise line. Parkinson's Recovery will be offering uh, free workshops, <coughs> free experiences uh, during the cruise. And, of course, you uh, also get the wonderful opportunity to be close to the uh, Glacier Bay National Park and to nature. So it will be a true healing experience for all who come aboard. You can get more information about the cruise by simply visiting the main website, parkinsonsrecovery.com, and there's just a link, a little icon there that says cruise. Click on that, and you can find out the full scoop about the Parkinson's Recovery Cruise this spring. The best news of all is if you sign up early, which I believe is clearly December, you'll be able to get it for like $100 a day. It's about the most inexpensive price I've ever seen for a cruise, which which was really what attracted me, since it's, since it's a first-class opportunity for a vacation, but the cost is very, very minimal. So be sure to check it out. Uh, we'll be there uh, with bells and whistles, uh, hoping to be able to meet and greet uh, you. Now back to my interview with Dr. Daniel Newman. Some people want to go cold turkey and stop taking their Parkinson's medications. Is this a smart thing to do? Well, my answer to that would be the the classic aphorism, don't try this at home. Um, There are certainly cases of, of patients with Parkinson's disease that I have seen where they are able to come off medications, But it's not something that you want to try on your own, particularly, as you were saying, Robert, cold turkey. Because what can happen is you can get a a rebound effect where you can get uh, literally a complete freezing up, I have seen in some cases, where people come off their medications and they literally can't move at all due to a combination of fatigue and muscular rigidity. So I think that... Going off medications, whether it's it's suddenly or via taper, and most of the times you'll want to taper off these medications, although not always. But if you're going to go off those medic off medications, I think that that really is only going to be safely accomplished with some kind of expert medical supervision. Can drug interactions be a problem for people with Parkinson's? Absolutely. The, the, the drugs that are used to treat Parkinson's disease are designed to help boost the dopamine system in the brain in a variety of different ways. Some of them mimic dopamine in the brain. Some of them actually increase the production of dopamine. Some of them are antagonistic to uh, another system of neurotransmitter, uh, neurotransmitter utilizing neurons called the acetylcholine system, and these systems don't just affect movement. They affect many other processes in the body. So when you take drugs that affect these systems, you can have other drugs that can also impact the systems, and you can have quite a bit in the way of side effects, either individually from the drugs or from the drugs taken in combination. So it's just something that needs to be managed in, in expert hands. You have specialized training and experience in treating pain. What would you want people with Parkinson's to know who are experiencing a great deal of pain right now? Is the only hope for relief available through medication? The best answer I can give you is sometimes but not always. Um, There are certainly cases with Parkinson's disease where you do need to use pharmaceutical medications in order to 
um, block the pain receptors in order to decrease muscle spasm. But by treating the underlying root cause, uh, causes, as I spoke about earlier, and also using some of the other natural modalities available, acupuncture can be particularly useful here, you can oftentimes decrease spasm and decrease pain. So I, my answer would be no, you don't necessarily have to be on medications in order to decrease pain, but there are some cases where it really is a, a godsend. Do you have a particular form or type of exercise that you recommend for people with Parkinson's? Well, studies show that exercise that helps to improve balance can be particularly helpful in patients with Parkinson's disease because they very frequently do have problems with balance, particularly falling backwards, which if you're going to fall is not the way you want to do it, but that does tend to be the tendency in Parkinson's disease. And there have been different um, approaches to this that have been used. There's the, the classical Chinese exercises that we, we call Tai Chi that can be quite helpful. Um, I just read a study more recently where they actually used, and, and, I, and I hesitate to give a product plug here, but the Wii in order to do exercises at home on your computer that help with balance. So there isn't anything particularly magical about, about Tai Chi, although it can be very effective, but anything that helps with balance or helps people to um, work on their balance can be particularly effective. Now, strengthening exercises are also important because it's not uncommon for people with Parkinson's, oftentimes because of the inactivity that the disease often leads to, to lose muscle strength and muscle mass, and that can be an issue. And similarly, cardiovascular exercise can help with circulation and therefore be a help in the detoxification process. So I encourage my patients with Parkinson's disease to do a breadth of exercises, but if I were to have to focus on only one based on the, the symptoms that people with Parkinson's develop and also the research, it would be exercises that improve balance. But you mentioned Tai Chi. What is so special about Tai Chi? Well, Tai Chi, and for those of you who, are, who might not be familiar with it, who haven't seen uh, television or photographs or movies of people in, oftentimes in beautiful settings in parks doing these graceful movements, Tai Chi is a, a series of exercises that were actually originally developed as a form of self-defense for monks around the 10th century AD who were traveling across the Himalayas from India to China. And of course, monks tend to, the Buddhist monks tended to be um, pacifists and, and didn't carry weapons and there would be bandits on the road. And so they, they learned what was a purely defensive form of exercise that they could use to uh, protect themselves while not causing necessarily any harm. Now, over the centuries, its uses have been expanded so that we found that it can improve balance because in Tai Chi, you're constantly shifting weight so that all of your weight is on one leg to where you could pick up the other leg to where all of the weight is on the other leg to where you could pick up the first leg. And so that's particularly useful when you're trying to gain balance. Now, the Chinese also talk about, as I was speaking of earlier in terms of energy, that Tai Chi improves energy flow. And it's difficult to feel increased energy. Now, for, for those of you that may have a hard time with that concept, 
if your hands are cold, then you can you can basically say there's not very much energy in them, and when there's warmth, there's more energy. So you might think of it as warmer versus colder, although you can get different sensations if you become attuned to them. But um, it's difficult to feel energy flow with Tai Chi unless you've been doing it for at least 10 years or so. Uh, there's other forms of, of movement exercises called Qigong that are much simpler, where people can both develop balance and also get this sensation of energy in their bodies moving in ways that they might otherwise. So Tai Chi is a specialized form of Qigong, helps with balance, helps with energy flow, and it actually has practical applications if you, if you happen to want to use it that way. Is there any particular diet that you recommend? I am very particular about the diet that I recommend, and that also is, is, Robert, a very broad subject that would take the rest of our time to discuss in its entirety. But I can give people some, some very basic and, and, and very straightforward recommendations. And then, of course, there are diets that have to be individualized from there. If someone has diabetes or kidney disease or high blood pressure or heart problems or other medical issues, that, then you need to specialize the diet beyond that. But there are three things that, that I can say um, with, with certainty that I would apply to everyone. One is don't eat processed food. When food is processed, then not only oftentimes are chemicals added, which can have deleterious effects on the body, but the processing itself can change the uh, nutrients in such a way that there is a lower nutrient content, a less balanced nutrient content, and that there may be, by changing some of the proteins in food, an increased tendency towards adverse allergic reactions. So don't eat processed food, rule number one. Rule number two is to eat as much organic food as possible. The majority of studies that have been independently funded have shown that organic food has a higher vitamin and mineral content than food that's grown conventionally, and probably more importantly than that, does not contain the kind of pesticide residues that particularly patients with Parkinson's disease want to avoid. The last thing you want to do if you have Parkinson's disease is to take into your body something that can be potentially toxic to the neurons that, um, whose loss is causing Parkinson's. So the set, rule number two is eat as much organic as possible. Rule number three, which is actually a corollary to rule number two, is don't eat genetically modified food. Um, genetically modified food has been shown in study after study, um, in independent studies, not those funded by the companies who have something to gain from it, but in independent studies have been shown to be toxic to animals, and there was only one human study that showed similar problems with human beings. So genetically modified food should be avoided as well. What does it really take, in your opinion, for a person with Parkinson's to begin getting sustained relief from their symptoms? Well, I think it's possible for patients with Parkinson's to take a drug and potentially get some degree of immediate sustained relief. But if we're talking about long-term sustained relief and diminishing the chances of progression, I think it takes a whole concerted effort. I think it takes the, the three aspects that I was talking about earlier. 
um, managing symptoms so that life is livable, um, protecting the brain from further injury, and detoxifying the, the, detoxifying the body as much as possible. So really it's a whole lifestyle change, not only diet, but also managing your environment so you're not exposed to additional chemicals. You know, many of the chemicals that we don't even think about, we may be exposed to in cleaning compounds, in um, uh, compounds that we may use for, for care of our lawn and grounds, compounds that we use on our bodies that we don't even think of the ingredients in. So it really requires a different level of awareness to avoid these things. And then, of course, there are the medical aspects of taking the proper supplements and other kinds of treatments that can facilitate recovery. So it really is a whole comprehensive program in my, in my experience. This is Parkinson's Recovery and Robert Rogers. You are listening to my interview with Dr. Daniel Newman. If you've just joined us, Dr. Newman has an explanation about Parkinson's disease and his perspective on what helps people get sustained recovery on the Parkinson's blog. So you can read that. It was posted December 10th by visiting www.blog.parkinsonsrecovery.com. The radio programs are always available on the Internet for download and for listening. They are always archived. My concern has been that many people don't have computers who would like to be able to listen to the information that, for example, Dr. Newman is conveying to us today. I've created the Parkinson's Recovery Weekly Reader Series where we send out a couple of CDs. One of them has the radio program from the previous week. If you know anybody that could uh, be advantaged by listening to the radio programs, be sure to check into the Parkinson's Recovery Weekly Reader Program. Again, these programs are always available here on the Internet for free, but some people simply don't have computers. Again, I want to remind everybody my new book is out as of 12 hours ago, Road to Recovery from Parkinson's Disease. You can get the scoop at www.parkinsonsdisease.me. And Parkinson's Recovery is sponsoring a cruise to Alaska seven days, May 3rd. It leaves from Seattle at the low price of $699 for seven incredible days. Now back to my interview with Dr. Daniel Newman. What would you want a person to know who has just been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease? Well, what I'd, what I'd want him to know is that, as, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a, excuse me, a sentence. Um, whereas Parkinson's disease in, 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 usual, uh, in the usual cases um, is a progressive disease, that it doesn't necessarily have to be a rapidly progressive disease, and particularly in the early stages, uh, the symptoms can be reversible. So what I would want somebody to know who has just been diagnosed is that this would be the time to be aggressive about pursuing treatment that will not only manage their symptoms but other but deal with the other aspects of protecting their central nervous system as well. Do you take new patients? Yes, I do. 
And how do patients make an appointment with you? How do they get in touch? Well, patients can call my office. Uh, if, 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 I don't know if I should give the phone number or not. It's it's uh, 360-696-3800. And uh, speak to one of my receptionists, and they would be more than happy to give them all of the information that they need to be able to set up uh, a new appointment. And, and Dr. Newman's uh, clinic is in Vancouver, Washington, not Vancouver, Canada, but Vancouver, Washington, which is about uh, an hour and a half uh, drive south of Olympia, Washington. What is the URL of your website? It's drdanielnewman.com. That's D-R and then my name, D-A-N-I-E-L-N-E-W-M-A-N.com. And how might a person get in touch with you personally if they would like to explore what you've discussed further? Well, um, you can call my office, and if you uh, are on the fence about whether or not you wanted to, to come down and pursue any treatment, then I would be happy to have a conversation with you to explore that and my receptionist will take all of the, the information from you that way. Also on my website, whereas it's not a, a direct conversation with me through that avenue, I do have an e-newsletter where I, I cover different uh, important topics in the uh, alternative medicine world, and um, it's free, and you can sign up for it there. So when a person goes on your website, they can enter their email address, their name, and be able to start receiving that email newsletter. That's correct. What is the one thing from my interview with you, Dr. Daniel Newman, that you would like most for people to remember? If you're not satisfied with the improvement that you're getting, from the treatment that you're having, then I would suggest exploring other options. What question should I have been smart enough to ask you that I wasn't smart enough to ask you? I don't know, Robert. Those were a lot of pretty smart questions. I'm not sure if there's <laughs> another another uh, question that's 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 really burning that we that we didn't cover. I think you you, you covered a pretty a pretty broad array, array of subjects here. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to be able to answer all of these questions. It's been an honor and a privilege and a pleasure for me to be able to interview you today. Thank you, Robert. The pleasure is mine. You have just uh, been listening to my interview with Dr. Daniel Newman, medical doctor, naturopath doctor, and doctor of Chinese medicine, who really is at the cutting edge of figuring out what can uh, provide sustained relief to individuals who have the symptoms of Parkinson's. My, uh, my deep thanks to him for participating in the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Network program. Our program next week will consist of uh, two interviews. The first interview will be with Trucky Robertson, who will be telling us all about the details of the Parkinson's Recovery Cruise. I ask him a thousand questions about what's involved, and he answers them all. So if you signed up for the cruise, this is a must-listen-to program for you. Uh, Truckee is an individual who's been in the travel industry for 20 years. He's one of the survivors. 
he basically provides first-class service to individuals who'd like to be able to get help in figuring out how it is that you get from the airport to the cruise ship, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's really quite an amazing man, and it's an honor for me to be able to pardon, partner with uh, Truckee on our cruise to Alaska, where Parkinson's Recovery and our staff will be providing demonstrations and experiences for people, helping everyone be able to get relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's. It's been a true pleasure having you join us here on our radio program today. And that's what's happening on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, all the men are handsome, and all the children are truly loved. Know that you are on the road to recovery. Good day.